I'm Sally Ann from Map the Maze. I'm Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. Together we speak about nurturing neurodiversity. All the ways we can create a truly inclusive society. We aim to educate, inspire and create social change. Through sharing stories, experiences and research, we challenge current systems and open dialogue on what we can all do to create change. We hope you will join us on our journey. time you're joining us welcome hello I'm Sammy Ann and this is Patricia Falchetta we are hello. talking about um, nurturing neurodiversity is the name we've, we've given to basically our whole work together because that's effectively what we stand for and what we're about um, and today's episode we are talking all about empathy we think it's such a really important topic to talk about because there seems to be such a large misconception around that people children who are neurodiverse don't experience empathy that they actually don't have it and it is such a falsehood that it really fires us up when we talk about it. So we will be definitely touching on those points today. Um, Patricia, is there anything that you want to say when we are introducing this topic, when we are, you know, talking about empathy? Yeah, that's right. I love what you said. You and I both get really fiery about it. And it's something that we want to um, come on and talk about today and just spread a bit more education and awareness about it. So um, I actually gave a presentation this morning um, at a breakfast meeting that I go to and I was taught, saying how it's just it's such a myth that um, people, neurodiverse people, so not just people with autism, but all that neurodiverse people don't have empathy or don't um, feel empathy because it's quite the opposite. Uh, they actually feel it in bucket loads because they're so sensitive to the environment that they really, really pick up on other people's stresses or um, other factors that are going on uh, with uh, their peers around them internally. And although they might not have um, the language to support that or the social skills to, to support that because they do struggle communicating socially, or let's say that they struggle communicating in a neurotypical way, mm -hmm. not necessarily communicating in a neurodiverse way, but they have difficulty struggling, um, communicating, bigger party in a neurotypical way that, it, that then sometimes the fact that they do feel that empathy and that is, is misunderstood or seen as them not uh, displaying empathy. And one thing that completely comes like springs to mind like that is they could be at a, a you know, um, at a, at a funeral and their mother or father could have passed away and, they will not be crying and showing the emotion that neurotypical people will be. But that's because in a lot of cases, they'll be processing that information, processing what's going on. Um, they will also be picking up the grief and stress of everybody else around them. They'll be trying to process that plus work through their own grief. So there's, sometimes there's a lot more going on within their brains or their minds so that then then they're not expressing you know grief like we would expect them to and that's just an example that i can which is a really easy example to demonstrate because you know you think about that oh if your mum and dad's passed away you're going to be so upset which they they will be but they won't necessarily mm. show it in the way that we see mm. So they should be. It's such a great point, right? Because what, what, what we're effectively saying is that, you know, the, the, the depth of emotion and the depth of empathy that they can experience is 
oftentimes the same and, and actually quite regularly deeper even than, than, you know, we as neurotypical people can feel because, because mm. of their, you know, their extra superpowers, we often say. That's right. But, but, but because they are not behaving or outwardly expressing these in the same way that we would expect, we therefore, like it, it tends to be sort of an assumption from us as neurotypical people that, okay, well, they're not feeling those feelings but actually mm. the disconnect comes from the fact that those feelings are inside but their, their ability to actually express the, that with words with you know what you know however people would like to would normally you know tears and all of the different things the way that you would normally see that expressed can look very different and the fact that we make that wrong is actually the problem rather than mm. the way that they express that being the problem um, mm. Now, if they're having trouble expressing it to the point where they're not moving through the feelings effectively and it's actually hindering their ability to, you know, to live a, a relatively happy life, a, you know, mm. a successful life, then there are ways we can support, you know, neurodiverse people through that. But mm -hmm. I think the first point is just to have some understanding from, from general society, from neurotypical people and from, you know, just as us as a general society to know that actually you know what we see on the outside just because it doesn't match our outward experience doesn't make it any different you know any worse you know it's not wrong because it doesn't look the mm. same way as how you would expect it to look so us having mm. some understanding about what that might look like for you know for our children and for our, our you know for adults as well um mm. i think is a really important part of the equation um the equation so you mentioned mm, I'm, there. I'd love you to go over, Patricia, some of the, you know, what we might typically see. And I think often we will refer th to them as, as meltdowns or tantrums, um, especially for children. But what sorts of behaviours would you see when, you know, when a neurodiverse person is experiencing quite deep emotion or quite deep empathy for the emotions of others around them? Mm, yeah, no, I'll go through that. And I just, I'll just backtrack a little bit. Too. I love what you said when you said it. it's the fact that we look at it as wrong that, or that we're the ones that are saying we're passing that judgment saying that it's wrong and it's it's actually not it's 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 not wrong and um this is the difficulty that so many of our neurodiverse um you know counterparts experience is that we are constantly labeling them and judging them rather than understanding what's going on so you're asking, you know, what like what signs you what signs you'll see. So something that I'd like to um, uh, start with and point out directly is that um, so people um, on the autism spectrum and and neurodiverse people in generally have a much more heightened sense of awareness of what's going on around them and have um, a hypersensitivity to what's happening around them. So. Um, for example, I often call it, I often will describe it as uh, too loud, too noisy, too bright, too, you know, too, too, almost like too overwhelming. The world is so overwhelming for them. And so quite often they're working constantly trying to regulate their nervous system just to fit in or mask, right? And, and look like it, they, what we think everybody else is supposed to be looking like. So then in a situation such as empathy, they will be feeling, um, so let's say in a classroom, for example, and this is where my, my passion around the subject is, is so strong. And the reason why it's so strong is that I see five and six year olds being suspended from school or seven, eight year old, you know, being suspended and then eventually being expelled. Now what's happening in that classroom situation, and I know Sammy, you will have a lot to say about this as well, is that that little, that little boy or girl is sitting there and they're let's say like 
um, you know, little, little little Johnny or, you know, little Mary has fallen in the, in the playground and hurt themselves and they're in tears. So, um, you know, and, and X is a neurodiverse person, right? And they also, they go, oh, you know, Johnny and Mary, they've fallen over, they've hurt themselves. So they hear them crying. So one, probably the, probably the noise of them, the, that person crying really hurts their ears anyway, because it's quite high pitched and they might have auditory issues. But secondly, they know that that person is in pain and they actually feel that and pick up on that more because they're so hypersensitive than, than, um, some, than one of the other peers in their class. Forward. So that could be one thing that happens. Then um, something else happens where, um, you know, a child in the classroom is struggling with uh, a piece of work or even the teacher gets really stressed. So then they pick up on that. So that, that's, that's, that's two things already. Okay. So the child's got hurt. They know the child's got hurt. They feel the sympathy. They feel the empathy for the pain, but if they're five or six, they don't have the language to express that. And they don't. And, you know, and also sometimes too, as we know, communication with neurodiverse people can be delayed and they might not quite have the verbal language yet anyway. Then, you know, something happens, like let's say the teacher starts shouting at the class, the teacher's really distressed, so they pick up on that. Then something else happens throughout the day, like an unpredicted change, like they think they're going to have to do PE and then all of a sudden from having to do PE, they've got to then go to assembly, okay? So there's also then that little boy or girl explodes in the classroom and by an explosion, I mean that they could throw furniture, they could swear, they could act out, they could hit another kid, they could hit the teacher, things like These are the things that these kids get suspended for. But what is actually happening is there's three to four to five things that have accumulated that have caused this explosion to happen, mm. okay? And then, so that's, that's, that's one example of what can happen. So they'll then think of, you know, this, this myth that this person isn't feeling or that they don't, that they're... Um, you know, that they're not expressing. So like in a situation like that, let's say that little Johnny Marie falling over is that fifth thing that's happened, right? And then that child has that explosion. And then the teacher thinks that X, who's the neurodiverse child, has no sympathy or empathy because this person's fallen over and then they have this absolute mm. whopper of a meltdown and they might be throwing furniture and all that. And they think mm. of, you know, they'll think it's misbehavior. It's really selfish. They're trying to get attention all of this sort of stuff, but no, it's a, that's been the last thing that's tipped them because they're then feeling that, that their friends just hurt themselves and they don't know what to do. Mm. So that's that's an example of of you know of of, of what can happen. Um, so do you want to add anything before? Like, yeah, yeah, I I feel that I feel that so deeply, <laughs> Patricia. How you <laughs> just because you got very passionate, and I feel that passion because I think that you know there's a few things going on here, right? I think first, you know, you talk about they often are hyper-aware, are hypersensitive to mm. the feelings and emotions of people around them. And I really think that that is almost like a, a biological adaptation for them to survive in a neurotypical world because we still have a neurotypical society, right? It's everything's based on what's best for, you know, what we call a normal brain. What's mm. normal anyway, but what we call a normal brain, what we call, you know, and it's generally for like in terms of um, what people look like. We're looking at white middle-aged men is what basically yeah. our ideal is based on for our whole society, right? Yeah. So the, exactly. So anything outside of that norm can often be looked on as different or weird or something to be fixed. And mm. so that's, that's the first thing that's going on. The second thing is the lack of understanding from other people that what these behaviors represent is not what it looks like, is not one plus one equals two most of the time. It's actually 
like you said, there are so many different factors going on beneath the surface that we don't see until it hits the point where they can't cope with it anymore. And then we see mm. the behaviours. I think the most important thing for our carers, our parents, our educators, for society really to understand is that especially for children, but actually for all of us, behaviour is communication. Behaviour is another mm. kind of communication. You know, language is one way, whether we speak it, whether we write it, whatever tone of voice and body language is another way behavior is a massive one and especially for our neurodiverse children because they don't have those other means of communication just yet they haven't learned it a lot of the time they don't have the same level of skills that we would expect them to have by that age just by nature of how they have developed and how their brain is wired and so mm. actually if we just all start from the understanding that behavior is communication then instead of looking to punish behavior we're looking to understand behavior mm. we're looking to say holy moly, what's happened to poor, you know, little X over here who's having a massive meltdown because, you know, Johnny and Mary have hurt themselves. What's the connection here? Like what's happened? Instead of going, you're misbehaving, even the word misbehavior, I have a problem with, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. understanding, you know, and looking to see what's behind the behavior is the first, the first thing we need to do for everything. And I think that, yeah you know, our schooling system, our, you know, our, our caring system, our, our workplaces would be, you mm. know, so much more improved if we came from a position of wanting to understand as opposed to wanting to punish or, you know, fix. Yeah. And, you know, Sammy, just, um, sorry, if I could just interject that what you were saying about the misbehavior. Okay. So mis children don't misbehave and neurotypical, neurodiverse, whatever, whatever, no child miss, but they behave to communicate a need. So the behavior is always communicating need. And I think that's something that's really, really important uh, to get across is that all children are behaving to get a need met. Oh, so so, so, more, so I think more not, than that, I can't, no. I can't even remember what the quote is from so it's not my quote it's it's a quote from someone <laughs> but talking about the fact that will children actually it might even be from the whole brain whole brain child um by dan siegel mm. talks about that all children will do their best all children mm. are doing mm. the best that they can do that they, there's no purposefully trying to you know do the wrong thing there's no you know they're going to do the best with what they've got and so if they're taught that their best is not good enough they're going mm. to get to the point where they're just not going to try at all Mm. And that's yeah. where so many of the problems happen. And that's yeah. what we're talking about labeling mis people, you know, children who are misbehaving is yeah. counterproductive to a solution. It's causing more yeah. problems than it's solving. Exactly. And, you know, if you're behaving to get a need met, and if you particularly if you don't have the language to then articulate what that need is, that is going to come out in that, you know, in, in terms of, um, in terms of a behavior. Mm. Um, Something that I also wanted to talk about today too, just to get and uh, introduce this idea to our audience and for people to get a better understanding of is um, a lot of neurodiverse people, it's quite common, have um, something called alexithymia, which is also what can affect um, this, you know, and also, um, sorry, connects to this myth of them not having any empathy or any um, appreciation of what others are feeling. Mm. So what alexithymia is, and it's quite common um, if you um, looked it up afterwards, after watching this live, if people look it up, it's in people that are neurodiverse, I think it's about, they think it's probably about 80% of the neurodiverse population have alexithymia. And what that is, alexithymia is the 
inability to actually recognize your own feelings. So what's going on inside you. So if you are getting really stressed, like in that classroom situation that we were talking about, they won't even know that it's happening to them because they have don't, it actually um, in really, really plays havoc on that ability to interpret what's happening inside. They're actually stressed. So it's the inability to recognize what's happening inside you, but it's also the inability to read other facial expressions and what is happening for others, which is why so many people on the spectrum have difficulty reading facial expressions. It's actually because of, because of Alex Thymia, mm. which is really, really common. And they can, people can learn skills. People that have it can learn skills and ways to get around it. Just means that they, uh, you know, which is really hard for them. They have to put a lot of work into, but they can work out ways of, and, and there's a lot of work now that's been done with helping people to recognize those feelings that's going on. But that is something too that is, that's contributing to this myth as well. Mm. And I think what you can have then in situations where, you know, a, a person, you know, in a, in a social context, for example, you know, one child oh. can be really upset and, and crying, but not actually saying the specific words about that they're upset or whatever they might be crying and saying, I'm fine. And yeah. so a neurodiverse person will hear the words, I'm fine and go, okay, I'm fine means everything's okay. All right, cool. Okay. And so then they'll move on. Whereas if the person had actually said, I'm really upset because blah, 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 and logically and, and you know, rationally spelled it out, which also mm -hmm. for other children is very difficult. For all of our children, that's difficult, right? But if you have an adult yeah. in that context being able to say and talk that through and say this person's upset because then typically the neurodiverse child will then go, oh, okay, I see what's happening, right? So this is a thing that I can't, you know, I shouldn't say this or I shouldn't do that, even though this is, mm. I think in its truth, this is one of those situations where I go, okay, I shouldn't say that because it will hurt the other person's feelings. So actually, mm. that sort of stuff actually has to be explicitly taught. Mm. And when, you know, when we're looking at that social context in terms of, you know, communication with others and, you know, and, and what's friendly behaviour and unfriendly behaviour and all of these sorts of things with our children, mm. Explicitly teaching these skills, I think, is so important for all children because mm. there are neurotypical children who struggle with this as well. It's not just neurodiverse children who struggle mm -hmm. with social skills, but often neurotypical children will, will mask the difficulties better because they just pick up on what's done by mm. other people. And so they'll pick up maladaptive practices that will see them through those mm -hmm. early stages, but maybe not be very good once they you know, enter adulthood or even sometimes mm -hmm. even the teenage years. So mm. I think it's actually really important to, you know, to recognize and think about the fact that social skills is actually a massive part of our children's development and just sending them out to play and just sending them to school where they get sent out to play is actually not the ideal setting to teach social skills. We actually need to, to, you know, dedicate a whole portion of the curriculum to explicitly teaching social skills. Now, a lot of the, you know, a lot of our skills that we want our children to develop is in the curriculum, but they're generally looked at as a, you know, as sort of a higher order thinking where it's like, well, just the mm -hmm. environment will help them learn these skills. That's we don't correct. sit yeah. down and have a lesson about social skills. We actually just, yeah. you know, it's kind of like an overarching um, value of the school, which is great, but we really mm. need to take it a step further and go, actually, we need specific streams of you know, social skills teaching where it's like from prep, here's the things that we learn and grade one, here's the things that we learn because we know that social skills get more complex the same way as maths and literacy get more complex as we move mm. through the stages. And so we can teach social skills in exactly the same way. We can start with the basics. We can start with four basic emotions and say, what does that look like? What does it feel like in our body? What can we do with it when we feel that way? All of these skills can be taught from, you know, from prep onwards, really from preschool onwards. 
but we can start at basic levels and we can add more complexities as we get older because the best way to teach social skills is is in a social context is when you have you know several children all together and we can say step it out and say what do we want the outcome to be okay how do we get there what are the steps involved if you want to go and join this group of children to play this game how do we do that what does that look yeah. like and giving them you know practical examples in the moment that they can use and they can try that again next time and if that doesn't work in the other context give them a different option because that's such a you know it's such a massive part of us actually learning and teaching social mm -hmm. skills so it's a little bit of a tangent but i think it's really vitally connected because that's i think yeah. where a lot of the myth stems from is that in social contexts it seems like you know neurotypical or neurodiverse people don't respond with empathy mm -hmm. But if they understood that the situation called for empathy, then they would because they still mm. feel it. And like yeah. you say, so much of that is actually not even being able to understand. It's like it's like these, you know, feelings are going through their body and they mm. can't name them. They don't know what it is. And so it's all of this stuff sort of jiggling around inside them, trying to come out with, you know, trying to make those mm. connections to come out. But the connections are what's often missing and what we mm. actually need to help them put in place. And so if the connection is missing, then they're just, you know, swirling around with all of these feelings all day. No wonder it doesn't take much for mm -hmm. them to go, oh my gosh, I can't, you know, Sorry. on top of all of the sensory things that they're also handling. Yeah. So it's like physically Which their whole are, bodies uh, are full. They're so yeah. full. Yeah, like you think about the noise in the playground, which is quite a normal, you know, thing. But if you're on, if you're neurodiverse and you have those auditory processing issues, those noise levels can be uh, excruciating for you. Um, and then also like school bells and things like that when you typically um, add to that overload as well. And I was just thinking when you were talking just then also too that we should be um, uh, talking to our audience too about then how this can then um, flow into adulthood and flow into the workplace as well mm. because what will happen and particularly people um, that have never had the advantage or help with being diagnosed or they, they don't actually know that they are neurodiverse but um but even for those that do these these are considerations to take to when in the workplace and supporting your employees if you like or your fellow team members so that they can so what we're looking at is we're looking at understanding understanding how um neurodiverse people um process empathy and how that works but also their communication styles and how all these different issues of having to fit in constantly affect them, okay? And then, then how that then carries into the workplace and into adulthood because we want them to be thriving at school, but then we want them to be thriving after school as well mm -hmm. and have better mental health outcomes and things like that. And that's a huge issue for mm -hmm. um, people who are neurodiverse. And even getting so employment, quite, right? Empl like employment yeah, rates are, are quite very high. Rates yeah. Are quite high. Yes. Mm. Yeah, of people like actually the unemployment rate of people on the spectrum is higher than that of the general unemployment rate in Australia. So it's higher if you just single it down to people that are that are neurodiverse. Mm. So, but sorry, where I was going with that was that we then need to understand too that other, that this thing with empathy and lack of empathy that that then follows into the workplace, but then will fall into the context of meetings if someone's really stressed in a meeting or something happens to one of their team members or, um, you know, or there's the, the team, the work team as such is under stress or if the workplace is going through a restructure or something, they will actually be feeling that, you know, tenfold, twentyfold, then they will have all the other sensory issues that the, that they're coping with. So I think, and I've just looking at our notes that we wrote down for 
talked to about this week, we're going to talk about how we can support through like emotion regulation, coaching, and increasing understanding or recognition. So how we can help in right throughout the school years, right coming up into adulthood. So did you want to just talk about that a little bit and I can talk about it a bit too? So yeah, following on from, you know, how how these things can affect our neurodiverse population right from when they're children all the way through into that into that adulthood i think the first the first step the first step to support whether they're a child or an adult at you know any age really the first step is for just us as a general society and and neurotypical people is to understand what's happening for them because Mm. we generally fear what we don't understand and that has been the pattern for the last hundreds of years right we fear what mm. we don't understand and so we call it different we call it wrong and we say it needs to be fixed and we put them in a box over here and say when you're fixed you can come back and join us and actually mm. what we need to do is just open up the box and say you're welcome here and if something is not going to plan if whether that's you know in the schoolyard whether that's in the classroom whether that's in the workplace move to understand that the first point of call has to be understanding why has this happened? What is going on for you? And not mm. a, why has this happened because I'm going to reprimand you <laughs> because you're going to get punished. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. How has this happened so we can support you better for this not to happen yeah. again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. has got to be the first thing. And I, and I hope that what we're yeah. doing by, you know, talking about this is, is helping to spread awareness, is helping to, mm-hmm. really, you know, make it understandable for people that don't experience these struggles because mm-hmm. that's a thing, right? Like we we can logically know something, but without actually experiencing it ourselves, it can be quite difficult to understand. So the first thing is just is listening and opening our minds mm. to the fact that, that, you know, other people's experiences are very different from ours. So I think that's definitely the first thing. The second thing is, you know, we talk about early intervention being really important. And I really think, you know, when we talk about intervention, it kind of makes me uncomfortable, right? I came from early intervention. It's like, it's, it's where my experiences had been, but now I'm looking at it going, it feels like the wrong word. What we're doing is it's support. What we want to put in place at any age is appropriate support for that person to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do. So whether that is, you know, go to school and and be in a neurotypical classroom, whether that is, you know, wanting to go and and work and, and do things that they love to do. What we want to do is, is provide them some skills and some strategies that they can use to handle the situation when it, when it becomes uncomfortable for them, when it becomes, you know, harder for them to handle. So in terms of, in terms of empathy, I think it, it, a lot of it starts with, you know, that it's twofold. It's emotion coaching. So it's actually understanding and giving them some language to use for their emotions, describing Mm. what certain emotions feel like. And so they can go, okay, that feeling, I think that's Mm. what happens to me when I'm angry. And it's going to be different Mm. for everybody. Everybody is different Mm. in how they experience it, but we can give some typical examples. And then for that individual person who is neurodiverse they can start to recognize for themselves the patterns within themselves and go okay Mm. when i'm feeling really excited this tends to be what happens in my body this tends to be you know how my arms react or my brain or my tummy whatever it is we can start talking to them about that so we can give them some language to label when that feeling happens that's what this emotion is when you see someone else doing xyz generally they will be feeling xyz and we can Mm. actually start to you know talk about this and teach this as a as a, as a topic because it yes. is a vital topic. It's, you know, learning about history is great, but if you don't understand what's happening in front of your face, yeah, yeah, yeah. what's the use? <laughs> what's the use yeah, of all exactly. of that knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't understand and, what's happening, yeah. So true. And then I think that, the other yeah. side of that coin is then the social skills that goes with that. We have to understand our own yeah. selves first 
And then yeah. by understanding ourselves, we can start to understand others. And that's the first step to developing social, yeah. true social connection. Yeah. Yeah. And actually teaching some skills in order to foster that connection in terms of what is acceptable. What are the social mm. rules in place? Mm. You know? Why don't we call someone fat when we're walking down the street? Like, what is the, what is the acceptable thing? Like, let's go through what the rules are because there are rules. Yeah. We all follow yeah. them. Yeah, the social rules. Most of the time. You know? <laughs> most of the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But they're yeah. generally unwritten social rules that we just kind of pick up on. And now we expect our children to just pick up on and actually really explicit about it then everyone will be on board and go okay cool i know that's from this list and i said that thing because i was really angry so that's i was feeling really angry and so i lashed out and i tried to hurt that person on purpose by using the, the unfriendly behavior mm. that i shouldn't do and so now i see how that was hurtful and i shouldn't have done that and so genuinely i am sorry for that and let's mm. move on and we can repair that connection you know what i mean like it's not mm. that we have to teach our children how to be perfect we mm. teach our children how to be real and how to understand mm. what's actually happening for them and that's mm. for, for all children. Mm. That's my little rant. Patricia, what have you got to add to that? Um, so, um, so you know how you were talking about emotional regulation? This is the thing too. So we don't teach. We just expect our kids to pick up on these things, right? Mm. So, if, so this is the thing too. Unless a child is emotionally happy and settled and they feel as like that they belong and that they also are not experiencing like a massive sensory overload every day in the classroom and that they feel emotionally even if they're not emotionally even and they don't feel that they will not learn okay they will not learn anything in the classroom so we're all supposed to be in the classroom learning okay or let's say even in the workplace in a training session in a meeting unless that person feels that sense of equilibrium they will not learn if there's a sensory thing going on and their head is pounding or um, you know, or they have something that they haven't been able to articulate or express or something that's happening that they don't understand, they're not going to learn. We all know that's that people so interesting. do not. I find the easiest way to conceptualize that is actually having a look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So he mm. talks about those base level needs need to be met before you can, before you can really be yep. operating at the higher levels. And that's exactly. exactly what you're talking about. It's being well fed, being, you know, yep. hydrated, being, having had enough sleep. So all those physiological needs, yep. but that also comes down to feeling safe. Like physically mm. safe and that often can come with if there are sensory things coming at you your brain is on overload thinking that there's more there than there mm. actually is right yeah because the world is yep, too much yeah. For you. yeah so that's a massive part of it for especially for neurodiverse people is that they're already mm. operating you know at a high you know at a you know a, mm. a more overloaded level they're experiencing mm. more of an overwhelm and so we actually need to get it to a level where they can be relatively calm and feel safe. Mm. And a big part of that is connection with other people. And so mm. often, you know, part of our assumption about the lack of empathy is that there's, a, there's, a, there's an assumption that they don't want to be connected to other people, that they somehow right. don't want love and connection the same way, but actually they do. They just show they it in a different way. Yeah. And the other thing too that you mentioned too that I thought was absolutely fantastic really made me think when you said it was, you were talking about, and just remind me because of, um, but you were talking about uh, being like fixed as in behaviorally. And I think it was in the context of like, you were talking about like almost like if you don't fit in. Okay. So you, and, and you, you were also talking about in the context was making me think of punishment. Okay. So, mm. so this is a big thing too about this, um, you know, and exactly what you're saying, what, what is normal. And this is the thing too, that I really believe that our, portion of people that are neurodiverse in the world is much higher than we realize because we know that girls mask anyway so we know that there's 
I, my, my, um, my um, suspicion or my thinking is that there are probably just as many neurodiverse girls in the world as there are boys, but it's just that girls do this thing in case our audience doesn't know, which is called masking. And some boys on the, on the spectrum do it as well. Yeah, and, we and I think as well, what can happen as well is that the actual, the, you know, the representation or the symptoms or the outward mm. you know, behaviours that we see yeah. are different for girls and we don't have criteria for girls. No, that's the, right. You know, 50 years of research that we have is based on boys. And so they're still catching up to what it that's actually right. can look like. And so, yeah, there yeah. could be a big differential based on that, I think. That's right. So, but what I was saying about that, so is that, that in the classroom, so this thing of like if, you know, a child isn't fit, like fitting in or into the, what they, what we see as normal terms of behavior. And then we single them out and we punish them. So we then are making them even feel more ostracized and more, more different that the, 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 the effect that this, that, that it has on their, um, that effect that it has on their mental health and on their sense of well-being and their sense of belonging. Okay. So this is the thing too, is that we want everyone to feel like they belong. We want everybody to feel that they've got the, you know, that they're welcome to be there, that we want them there. And if we're singling them out because we're getting these behaviors. So again, comes back to, um, and I'm not saying if a child is throwing furniture around room and that, that we don't need to find out why it's happening, but if we single them out and we suspend them or we expel them rather than actually looking at what the root of the problem is and why that has happened, what we're doing is we're making them feel like that they don't fit in anyway, singling them and we're making them feel, and the other the word that immediately springs to mind is shame, yeah. making them feel shame for what they've done. So then they start, and this is where the masking comes in too, because then they sort of think that behavior is wrong, so then they suppress it even more and more, mm. which then, as you and I both know, as adults leads to much more serious mental health conditions because they've been fighting with this mm. feeling of not being good enough their whole lives. And, the, um, and so the, mental, the mental and emotional, you know, toll of that is that it physically can manifest in the body. So whether it yeah. manifests as, you know, as mental health, as anxiety, depression, whatever, there are yeah. physical manifestations of that. And, mm. and that's how, you know, and then it can actually affect, and it affects the trajectory effectively of their whole lives because if they're thinking that they're never good enough, what we're effectively doing is we're punishing the children who are working the hardest. They're yeah. working the hardest to, to do what to they need to do to fit yeah. in, to, you know, to mm. sit still, to, learn. to listen. Learn. they're working harder than a lot of the other children to do that and then mm. when it's not good enough they still get punished mm. so i really see you know when you look at so when you look at the early years curriculum for example the three major overarching themes are being belonging becoming mm -hmm. that is you know in victoria that's our early years framework from zero to eight years of age and a lot of schools continue that theme into their, you know, they take into their, every school will have their values. When you go and, you know, look at their website, when you get all yeah. the things, they all have their own values, right? And so often part of the values is a connection, is a, you know, being, you know, socially responsible, is being, you know, having integrity, all of these things, right? Yeah. But I think as long as we have a system that continues to use punishment and reward, yeah. we cannot be fostering those values. No, they, they, right. they, they don't coexist together. It just no. doesn't work. When we're using a system of punishment and reward in our schools, mm. in our workplaces, in our society, mm. what we're creating is a set of behaviours that people mm. are adhering to. We're creating mm. a mask for people to wear in different situations. Mm. And I think this yeah. isn't true for neurotypical people as it is for neurodiverse people, just oh, yeah, yeah. people have to work harder to put that mask on and to wear that Absolutely. mask. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. But we all wear them, right? And I think yeah. a big part of, you know, this, this time, I think the reason why we're here, that this big social movement that we want to really create is to break down the masks and just be who we are and mm. let that be good enough. You know what I mean? Mm. Like not yeah. having to strive to these massive ideals that are set by someone else. Like whose ideals mm. are they anyway? When you break it down, generally people in power, mm. class white men, Christian mm. men. Um, like th th there's so much just in that, you know, in the way that our system is set up that we just don't question because we just, well, we grew up with it and that's just the way mm. it is. And, you know, mm -hmm. well, if they're misbehaving, then they need to be taught that that's not okay. And the way to teach them is to punish them. Mm. No, no one's learning through punishment. Mm. you're only just curbing your behavior yeah and or the you're going to, the opposite way yeah <laughs> and the thing to, to to remember here is that people on the autism spectrum or neurodiverse people are overrepresented in the justice system mm. so and this is my other thing too i feel the three key areas that we need to fix is around supporting neurodiversity and um, helping our neurodiverse population to thrive is the education system the health system and then the justice system because there is still so much misconception within the justice system so but we actually want to be obviously keeping everybody out of the justice system so they're they're the things that you know because like you're saying if you have this punishment reward set up and then you're already trying to and, and i love what you said i absolutely love what you said they're the ones that are working the hardest and I think that that's what people forget is that they are the ones, they are sitting there in the classroom, there's something going, and if they have ADHD or something too, the distraction, the impulsivity. So they're having to fight that impulse to go and look, have a look at that distraction because they know that they're going to yelled up, get, mm. beg your pardon, get yelled at if they get up and walk over to whatever that distraction is, right? Mm. Um, rather than understanding that neurodiversity of the brain and understanding that with ADHD, that's that impulsive behavior. And for that person, that's quite a natural, normal thing to do. It is not an abnormal thing to do. It's what their brain is actually telling them to do. But then you pull them up and you say, no, that's wrong. And they're thinking, why is it wrong? My natural reaction was to go over there and have a look at that. That's, that's not wrong. That's just yeah. the way that my brain is wired. And to be fair here, you know? too, I think to, you know, to teachers in particular, because mm. I feel like teachers are working really hard as well mm. the problem is the way that the classroom is set up with one teacher and 20 kids yeah. 30 kids however many is in the classroom that what they need is the children to behave in order to you know hit the outcomes that they need to hit which is ticking the boxes mm. for the curriculum which is ticking their boxes for what they're learning about and you know mm. with how they're progressing and and all of the things and so much of our education system has become about you know it's the teacher's duty to move their student from here to there. Mm. And instead of going, letting them do that in the way that works for their classroom, in the way that works for them and getting the support in that they need just because they need it, not because that we've ticked another box. Mm. That's where a lot of the problems lie because the teachers there, the, the pressures on them effectively become, well, I have to make sure that this child, you know, can understand this, this, and this, but how can I teach them if they're bouncing off the walls and if they're distracting the mm. other child, because this child needs silence in order to learn and this child needs to be moving about and this child needs, you know, some other kind of noise going on in the background that to be able to focus and concentrate. And so when you've got all of those competing needs, it can feel impossible. And so then what happens is you fall back on that old behaviorist thinking of, okay, well, we're going to re reward the class or we're going to reward certain children for, for displaying these behaviors because these behaviors are what we think is congruent to learning. And these behaviors, which is going to, you know, interrupt the class, which is going to, you know, cause stress for other children and all these things, these are the things that get punished. Mm. 
And so it's really hard to move away from a punish reward system within the classroom setup that we have and mm. within the curriculum that we have. And so until mm. we can actually change that for our teachers and, and support them to be able to yeah. teach how they teach and actually have allow the students that learn from that style of teaching to come to mm. them. And if they don't fit with that teacher, they have the option mm. to seek out learning from a different mm. teacher. Why do we have to go, okay, these children in this one classroom and this, this teacher is responsible. Like I remember mm. throughout my career, my, my education career, going, this teacher was awesome. I learned so much from them. This one, I, I didn't like them at all. And when I look at it, it's, it's not that the teacher didn't understand the topic, didn't, you know, wasn't able to communicate what they were teaching. It's just that that communication style didn't work for me. And in yeah. generally speaking, mostly it did because I, 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 you know, I learned through listening and through writing and reading and all of the standard typical, you know, ways that we show learning in a, in a classroom. Mm -hmm. So mm. I was quite successful, but if that's not the way that you learn, then there are few and far between, like the, the, the options oh. to learn the way you learn are few and far between. And so what we need mm -hmm. is a teacher who learns through movement, teaching children who learn through movement, <laughs> the things that they need to know and giving the child the option to go, yes, I really want to learn from that teacher. And when I'm ready and when I'm feeling safe and connected and in a space where I can challenge myself, I'm going to go and do some reading and writing from mm. this teacher who, you know, reads and writes and that's going to, develop me in that area and mm. actually just changing the whole way we view it instead of going you mm. need to just go to this classroom and move through these levels and then this classroom and move through these levels just going what would you like to learn about mm. and all of the things that are important for you to know like communication like reading and writing skills like basic numeracy skills those things will come when they're taught in you know with a subject matter that the child is interested in in a way that they can understand Mm. And until we can get to that mm. place, it's that there are still going to be children who fall through the cracks and who don't, you know, make it through school or who are not successful yeah. in the way that we typically see success. And yeah. we're going to still have this overarching system of rewards and punishments. Mm. And, you know, and that overarching system falls back on teachers as well, because then falls back on this, you know, we could, you know, go down like a whole different road here of things, but, you know, we could, but could. what I was going to say to you, you know what we need to be doing? We need to be supporting teachers to, um, supporting teachers to, for the reasons that they chose to become a teacher. Yeah. People decide to become a teacher for, for it's a vocation, right? It's a, it's a love you do it for a love. You want to mm. teach, you want to, you want to, you want to convey that joy of learning and all. Okay. Yeah. But what, yeah. what we're doing, what, what we're doing at the moment is that we're not actually supporting our teachers to remember the reasons why they, so we're not actually to remember the reasons why they actually originally became teachers in the first place and why they chose that because the average teacher leaves teaching within the first three years of the profession. Because they're so frustrated, by, yeah. so frustrated by the system, and it's all these things that we're talking about. Yeah. Because they probably they and there 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 would be hundreds of teachers out there that want to support their neurodiverse kids in the classroom. They don't want to be suspending them and all that sort of stuff. But when the system offer, doesn't offer them anything else, yeah. what do they do? They because that's all the system offers them. So they can't do that. Their hands are tied as well. And that's something that's really important. And I think that you and I, and we have talked about that, I know, in our lives before and our work before, is that, is that we know that teachers are doing their utmost best. And it's actually not, it's actually the education system that is institutionalized and archaic. Mm. And it's not even allowing the people that come into it mm. to bring about any change or, or growth mm. because they're just expected to fit into this norm and conform. 
Oh, yeah. So true. So on that note, Patricia, should we wind it up? I think we've, I think we've yeah. covered most of the things we wanted to talk about. If anybody, of course, has any questions after listening to this video or if they even come to you over the next few days, please do post them below. Or if you're not comfortable with commenting publicly, then just send either of us a DM because we're happy to answer questions that way as well. Absolutely. If we have a few, we will come together and do you know a video on the questions, basically <laughs> answering yep. all the questions. Yep. So that's um, right. Yes, and we do love questions. We we do love to hear you know what people still want to know about, what they want to learn about, because that you know that helps inform us in terms of what we can be communicating with everybody, and and hopefully we get to a place where we you know as a general society we really do understand what's happening for our children. Mm. If you have questions that's not about this topic and is about a future topic you would like us to talk about, please do feel free to contact us um, and we'd love to keep the conversation going. So please do contact us um, either through our pages or, or individually. So anything else that you'd like to say on closing, Patricia? No, I think that's all. So, um, yeah. So thank you for those of us, for those of you that have been able to jump on today. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening into Nurturing Neurodiversity with me, Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. And me, Sammy Ann from Map the Maze. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favourite podcast platform. To continue the conversation, come in and find us on our socials. You can find me on Facebook at Sammy Ann Map the Maze or check out my website www.sammyann.com. And you can find me on Facebook too, on Social Living Solutions, or also on my personal page, Patricia Falchetta. You can also find me on Insta at Patricia Falchetta, or my website, which is www.sociallivingsolutions.com.au. All the links to find us are in the description, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Where we'll continue to learn how to create a truly inclusive world for us and for our children.